All right, everyone, how are y'all doing? All right, I'll take your word for it. My name is Fred. I am the lead pastor here. Um, if you are joining us uh, for the first time uh, today, uh, welcome. Whether you're joining us for the first time in person or online, we are so glad to have you with us. Um, uh, we really do hope to be a church for you no matter who you are where you are, particularly um, a, a part of our vision statement, what we hope to do is, is to inspire you to walk with more uh, trust and faith in Jesus today than you did yesterday and tomorrow than you have today. And if that is something that you want, really, no matter who you are or where you are, we want to be a church for you. We believe we are. A couple of announcements as, as the kids uh, are making their way downstairs about Easter. I want to tell you what's going to happen uh, Easter Sunday and Good Friday and the week uh, before um, uh, Easter. We are doing two in-person services. Uh, with the same uh, requirements that we have now, masked and physically distanced. That's why we want to do two to give people options. We'll do the 9 o'clock and the 11 o'clock. And if you're joining us online, the 11 o'clock will still be a virtual, uh, the, the virtual service will still be available at 11 o'clock. Uh, that Sunday, there will be no post-sermon chat, uh, but we would love to have you join us as we celebrate the resurrection. And then what we're going to do, too, is on Good Friday, well, let me explain a little bit of what's going to happen the week of Easter, the Passion Week. Uh, this year, as we're going through the week of Passion Week, every day we're going to release a video uh, and an audio podcast where we are following Jesus step by step through the week leading up to his crucifixion. And so what, we're, what I've done is I've taken the, the, the Gospels, the Scriptures that speak to those each day, and I've kind of mashed them together uh, to, to, so that we can see this chronological look of what Jesus did on Sunday when he entered Jerusalem, what he did on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then Friday uh, for his crucifixion. And so on Good Friday, there will be a, a video available. If you want to join us virtually, you can do that and watch that at any time during the day and take communion with us when you watch it. Or if you want to come in person and, and experience the, the reading of those scriptures in person with communion in person, that service will be available as well. And so you can register for that online. So, so, so just to recap, Sunday, Palm Sunday, we're going to start a video, uh, something for you to engage with on Facebook and YouTube, and then an audio one on our podcast, Walking Step-by-Step Step with Jesus Through the Week. Good Friday is at 6.30 right here, or you can join us virtually at any time that day. That, that video will be available, and then Easter is 9 and 11 in person, 11 virtually. We clear? Got it? People at home, you got it? Great. Great. I uh, would love to, to see you join with us. All right. Now, I want to start off this message today uh, asking you a simple question, but what I hope is a somewhat revealing question to kind of lead us through our text today, and it's this. Uh, who are you when no one is looking? That's the question I have for you. Who are you when no one is looking? Right? What do you do when you are in private as opposed uh, to public? What do you do when you're alone? Now give this some thought, all right, because here's, here's what's kind of underneath that, is what you do when you're in private, is what you do when you're alone, is what you do when no one looking different than what you do in public, different than what you do in front of people. Let me go ahead and answer that question for you, and the answer is yes. 
it is, right? We all have this part of us that is different in public than in private, which is why we need the words that Paul writes to us today in Ephesians. In Ephesians, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. We're going to go through the first nine verses of chapter 6, and we're going to talk about a, 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 a some verses that have been highly um, argued and debated and thought through, through throughout the church history. And, and, but to understand these words, uh, we have to understand what Paul is, is, is couching them in, what is around these, these words. And, and, and Paul is going to start off uh, what we're looking at today, talking about being wise and being foolish, talking about, 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 about um, uh, wise and unwise. And it's important for us to understand what Paul had in his head when he wrote these words. Because his world was formed from the scriptures. And when I say the scriptures, I mean the Old Testament scriptures. Like that, those are the scriptures that he knew. And he had this, this life-changing uh, experience with Jesus. And he learned from Jesus like what these words meant. And so it's important for us to understand what does the scripture say about wise being wise and being foolish, about wisdom and foolishness. And in Proverbs, because that's like the book that you go to, right? When you want to know about God's wisdom, you go to Proverbs. And, and this idea of being wise and being foolish is a theme that runs through the book of Proverbs. As a matter of fact, in chapters like 8 and 9, 7, 8 and 9 in those chapters, wisdom is personified as this woman, right? And, and she beckons, employs people to follow her, not just in their, in their public life, but also in their private life. She's seen as, as, as teaching wisdom that applies to every area of people's lives. That, that, that if you listen to God's wisdom, that, that there's no place where God's truth isn't needed. That's what, that's what she does. And so you see, one way to think about a wise person in Scripture is this, that a wise person follows God in public and in private. And here's why I say that, because there's another woman in Proverbs. There's another woman who's, who's seen there, and her name is Folly, or Foolishness. And here's what she does. She also uh, talks to, to men and women as they walk by her. And what she says is she says, listen, you can do what you want in public, but come in here in private and enjoy what you can't enjoy in public. Come in here with me and, and, and do the things that you can't do out there. Do the things that you can't do in front, of, in front of God and in front of his people in public. Do the things in here that you can do. And so when you see that, you see this, this, this fool biblically is any person that lives God's way in public, but in private does what they want. And see, here's why this is important. All of us have a fool in us, don't we? All of us have a part of us that, that lives one way publicly and another way privately. Because I bet if I were to take your private life and expose it, there's something there that you would be embarrassed about. As a matter of fact, I, I had thought it'd be great if we could reverse engineer our Wi-Fi in here and just randomly pick somebody's cell phone, right? And, and put your last 10 internet searches up there. Wouldn't that be fun? No, it wouldn't actually, right? Like, like some of you that were like, just leave. Like that's, that's what I would do, right? Because that's the way we are. We all have this part of us that, and no, by the way, we can't do that, just in case you're wondering. But there's a part of us that, 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 that 
is different than our public life. And that barrier in between our public life and our private life is what Paul is going to address today. Because as we've been talking about Ephesians, we've been talking about what it means to live together. What it means to, to, to let Jesus tear down every barrier that divides us from, our, from, from, from ourself, from God, and, and ourself, from each other. And, and, and that's called unity. But today we're going to see what happens when that barrier between our public life and our private life is torn down. Now listen, as, as we go through this passage today, I want you to know that no matter who you are, there's something here for you. Whether you're an adult who's married, who's single, whether you're a child, whether you are a teenager, there is something here for each of us. Well, let's, let's look at what Paul says in verse 15. So chapter 5, verse 15. <clears throat> Paul says this. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise. So there's that wise and foolish language. Making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, he doesn't leave us hanging. He tells us what the will of the Lord is, right? Right? Because what is God's will for us? It's for this public life and this private life to be whole and to be together. Look at verse 18. He says this. So what is the Lord's will? Uh, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. All right. So here's what Paul does. He does something quite interesting, right? He, he, he goes from, from walking as wise and foolish, like what is the Lord's will? And, and he, he makes this turn. He speaks directly and says, don't get drunk, right? And he says on wine, um, because that was what they had then to, to, to over drink on. Now, for some of you, as you're listening to this, you're like, listen, I don't drink. Check. Let's move on to the next verse. I've got that, right? Well, here's the deal. Or some of you are like, I don't even like wine. I'm a whiskey guy, right? Like, like that, just stay with me, right? Like, like, here's the deal. Like I said, Paul's talking about wine, but in our time, we have lots of things uh, that we can get drunk on. Because what Paul is speaking here is more than what you put into your body, but he's going to show us why you're putting that into your body. And so it's not about getting drunk, uh, which leads to doing things that you're going to regret and doing things that if they were made public would make you embarrassed. It's about why you get drunk in the first place. It's about escape, to escape the, the, the pressures of life in public, even to escape the pressures of life in private. It's to numb out. Right? And so, so with that in mind, you can see that we have all kinds of alcohol. We have all kinds of drugs. This is, and it's not even about just alcohol and drugs. For us, it's anything that we escape with. It's anything that we use to numb us. As a matter of fact, when I was going to get, getting my degree in counseling, that's what they said all addictions are, are insulators. Every addiction is an insulator to insulate you from the world around you. It's to numb you out. And so this isn't just about drugs or alcohol. It can be anything that we use to escape, anything that we use to numb ourselves out on. It could be Netflix. Right? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have wasted hours watching shows you don't even like? Right? It could be YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. It could be those Amazon boxes that show up on your front door, Right? It's the stuff we use to numb ourselves out. Now, how do I know this is about escape? How do I know this? I'm not just making this up because, because Paul shows us that there is a better way than this. Look at, at the rest of verse 18. 
So he says, and don't get drunk on wine because that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now this word filled means to be complete, right? It means to be whole. It means to be fulfilled. It means to be content. And y'all, here's what I love about this. Guess what the word for Holy Spirit is? It's, it's, it's pneuma. That's the, the Greek word, and it means, the, it means breath, and so, and so Paul is saying, be filled with the breath of God. Now, if you remember, from last week, we talked about grieving the Holy Spirit, and we talked about the wrath of God, right? And how when you look at the New Testament, the Old Testament, you see this idea of wrath is different than what we expect, that wrath in the Old Testament, the same word for God's anger and wrath, well, for God's wrath, is the same word for breath, right? That, that, that it's the same word that God used to fill Adam with life in Genesis 2. And so, so the wrath of God isn't about God getting angry, right? Because he doesn't do things like when we think of anger, we think of doing things and saying things that we regret later. That God's anger and God's wrath is more about his grieving because he gives us life. And when we choose to go a different way, he's grieved by that, which is why in the New Testament it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, but embrace the life that God gives you. Embrace life with God, embrace life in God. And this word spirit, Holy Spirit, is just another picture of life in God, that God gives us his Holy Spirit. God gives us life with him. What I love about this Greek word, pneuma, is that it even sounds like you're breathing out, doesn't it? Say it with me, pneuma. Pneuma, you can't even say it without like, ah, breathing out, right? You see, Paul's point is, instead of escaping life, embrace life in God. And we don't escape life, but we, we get to embrace life with God. That he has life for you and me, and that life is in his spirit, which, which we receive when we say yes to Jesus. And here's what a divided life does. A life that's divided between the public and the private. A, private, uh, a divided life escapes. <coughs> Excuse me. And so here's what escaping looks like. Just to give you a picture of this, an escaping life looks like you go out to dinner with friends and you have a glass of wine and it's fun and, 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 and you go home and you drink an entire bottle of vodka by yourself. Right? That's what escaping looks like. Right? I've been a counselor for years and I've seen it. It's this, it's, 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 it's posting a picture of your salad on Instagram so everybody can see how healthy you are and standing at the pantry shoveling handfuls of potato chips in your mouth hoping that no one comes in to see you or doing this so the crumbs get off your shirt. That one is very familiar to me, right? That we can escape that way. It's, 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 it's playing video games with your community uh, of friends online, but then when that's over, because that can be good and that can be, be, be relationship building, especially in this, this, this younger generation, but it's when that turns off, it's staying up all hours of the night just to shut the world out. You see, this is escaping, but an embrace life, complete in God, is one of contentment and rest. And y'all, here's where we have to go here. We have to talk about the difference between escaping and rest, right? Because we need rest. God showed us how to rest. He took the seventh day and he rested. And y'all, what's been interesting is I've been going through the week of Jesus's life. Here's what's crazy. You see, Tuesday, for some reason, was a really busy day for Jesus. You know what Wednesday was? 
almost nothing. Right? Because Jesus in his humanity needed to rest. And rest is good. You see, but godly rest is not escaping. There's a difference. Godly rest empowers. And that's the difference. Sabbath is a discipline, and, and God gives us rest so that we can recharge. And I've got to tell you, as I've gotten older, what I've discovered is that I need more rest than I did before. Right? And what I've discovered is if I don't get that rest, it takes a long time to build up, but when it builds up, I have to have it. Oftentimes, my body tells me. Have you ever, I, I've said this once or twice, but, but have you ever heard that your body is a major prophet in your life? Have you ever heard that phrase? Like your body tells you what you need a lot of times. And sometimes your body will tell you, you have got to stop and rest. And if you're in your 20s or 30s, let me implore you, it is important to learn how to Sabbath well. Because in your 40s, 50s, and 60s, if you don't, if all you know how to do is escape, that's when you make really, really bad decisions. You see, and here's how to know if you're embracing life with God or if you're escaping the life that God has given you. And it's this. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says this. So if, if you're not getting drunk on wine and instead being filled with the Holy Spirit, here's what it looks like in verse 19. Addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. So you know, there's a joy there. I, I don't think the expectation is that we walk around like we're living in a Disney musical, right? Like we're just singing everything. But I think that there is a joy that's, that's clear in us when we are embracing life with God. And here's another way that it shows up. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, so embracing, embracing life in God privately empowers you to be able to connect with others in a godly way publicly, right? This, this private life embracing God really does empower a public life with God. Now listen, here's the deal too. If, if you escape, right, privately, but yet try and look godly in front of others, something's going to crash, right? If, if, if you're familiar with celebrity pastors and you're in that realm, you see it all the time. You see this public life with God and, and this private life escaping. Something's going to crash. Something's going to be found out. And if you find yourself escaping, here's what Paul is saying. If you find yourself escaping, turn it off and turn to Jesus. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Take a nap, for goodness sakes. Like rest. That's what rest means. Rest, Sabbath, means to cease work. It means, it means you stop. Like the house doesn't have to be perfect. The job doesn't have to be perfect. The people around you don't have to be perfect. God can work while you rest. God is at work while you sleep. That's what Sabbath is. It's saying, I intentionally stop work to acknowledge the fact that God is still working. That he doesn't need me to change the world. He is fine changing the world without me. And I can recharge and join him in his work later. 
Now, here's why this is so critically important, and here's why Paul sets us up this way, because we need this kind of life to be able to live what he's going to talk about next. We need Jesus to live this way, because look at verse 21. It's another way to see if, if, if we're living our, our private life and public life in, in unity in God. And 21 says this, submitting. I'm going to break this verse apart for just a little bit because it's important. Submitting means to put yourself under somebody else's authority, right? This word means to place yourself, to willingly place yourself under someone's authority. And look at who Paul says that we are to submit ourselves to. Look at who Paul says you're willingly uh, to, to put yourself under whose authority. He says, submit to who? To one another. Submit to one another. Submit to each other is what Paul is saying. You see, here's the deal. This letter was read. It was, it was written to, Paul wrote it. He was in prison. He wrote it to this church in, in, in Ephesus. And when I say church, I mean it was passed around to all these house churches. And those house churches were full of all different kinds of people. They were full of people that were married. Those, some of those married people have kids. It was single people. It was, it was people that, that, that had slaves. So you had slaves that were there. You had masters that were there. And I think it's important for us to understand that when this word says slave later, it means slave. It means people uh, that were owned and bought and worked for other people. But in the church, they were all together. And Paul's saying, listen, listen, the way the gospel works is you look around the room and you put yourself under the authority of each other. It was this, for us in the Western world, this scandalous idea, right? Because we're Americans, right? Right? And we're free and we're independent. But Paul is saying, no, actually, you're citizens of heaven. And for them, this would have been fairly common. A communal life was very, very common. But for us, it's to look around the room and to submit to the people that's sitting in this room together. It means that the, the slave would look and see his master across the room and would hear the words that Paul is about to say. It means that the husband and the wife would be sitting next to each other, or sitting in some cases they were on separate parts of the room. The women sat on one side and the men sat on the other. And, and they would look at each other and see like the words that are about to be said here, we're all hearing it. So we're all going to hold each other accountable to it. And the kids would look and see their parents, and their parents would look and see their kids. And what Paul does next is he, because is, here's what Paul believed, and I do too, that the gospel speaks into every situation and every relationship. And so what Paul is going to do is he's going to look around the room and he's going to say, okay, in these major relationships that we have, husbands and wives, children and parents, fathers in particular, slaves and masters, what does the gospel say to those? What does submitting to one another look like in those and he's not going to just give a command, but he's going to give the, the gospel behind the command. What it, does it look like? What is it required for you to live this private life embracing God, to be able to live this public way with God? <laughs> and here's what he says <clears throat> in verse 21. Here's the reason why we're to do this. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this word reverence means fear. But, but here's the deal, like, again, fear is one of those words that I don't think we fully understand when we talk about God, because, because I don't think we're supposed to be scared of God. 
I think the fear of God is this reverence of God. It is this awe of God. And here's why I don't think we're supposed to be scared of God. Because 1 John, I think it's 4.18, says that, says that perfect love casts what out? It casts fear out. And so if God is love and perfect love casts out fear, then the fear that, that, that's talked about here isn't a scared fear, it's a reverence fear. And the, and the closest example I had to this happened to me when I was in seminary. We, we were sitting in class and we had this guy in class. And kids, maybe, maybe you've seen this guy in class or seen this girl in class. And every time they raised their hand to ask a question, they really didn't have a question. They had a statement. Right? And, and, and I was in there with a group of other people, and we just kind of casually called him. Of course, not to his face, because that would be mean. Uh, it's probably mean that we were talking about him this way, but that's a different sermon for a different day. We called him Mr. Know-it-all. Right, Because every time he raised his hand, he had something to comment on, not something to question. There was a lot of pride when he raised his hand. And so one time, he raised his hand, and he made a comment. And he said, uh, you know, such and such, the, the professor had said something, I don't even remember what he said, but Mr. Know-it-all decided to contradict the professor with a book that he had read. And so he raised his hand, and he goes, well, I was reading this book, and so-and-so says this about what you just said. How do you respond to that? So that was his question, right? How do you respond to what I know to be true? And the professor did something, y'all, I've never seen anybody do. Because the professor said, well... The quote from the book that you're reading is on page 73. Knew the number of the book that this guy quoted and knew what page number that quote came from. And he goes, he goes and apparently, I'm just going to go ahead and put this out there. Apparently, you never finished the book. Because if you would have finished the book, you would realize what the author's doing is he's setting up what's called a straw man argument. And he's building a case for something just to destroy it later. And if you finished reading the book, you would see that the author actually agrees with me and not what you think he's saying. So I suggest you finish reading past page 73 and then talk to me about it. We were like, oh. And here's what we realized. This professor, you could ask him any question in the world and he would be patient with you and answer you but if you came to him with arrogance and pride he knew more than we did and he didn't have a problem showing us that and, and for me I think this is what this idea of reverence means I was never afraid of that professor as long as I approached with humility as long as I approached with true questions. You see, from that point on, Mr. Know-it-all, guess what he did? He either kept his mouth shut or just asked like legit questions. He had no more comments to add. You see, when we approach God with humility, with Jesus, we have nothing to fear. However, if we approach him like Mr. Know-it-all, we get to see a different side of God. And here's the thing about a private life and a public life. A private life of humility before God empowers this, this public life of mutual submission to the people of God. Like, let that sit in for a minute, that, that this, this, this private life of humility out of the reverence of Jesus, that is what empowers us to submit to one another publicly. Now look at verse 22, because this verse has caused a whole lot, of, whole lot of controversy. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, husbands, this verse is never to leave your lips. 
All right? I can't think of a good situation where that would be appropriate. You know why? Because if you look, who is Paul talking to here? He's talking to the ladies in the room. If you're a guy, he's not talking to you. He's got something for you in just a minute, so you just hold on. But he's talking to the ladies. And, and, and here's what he's saying, that, 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 that what he's saying here is in some ways, I think in many ways, incredibly countercultural to the environment that they live in. But maybe not in a way that you think. Because, see, in, in women of this time were often considered property, right? That you could do with women whatever you wanted to do with them. Men could divorce women if they didn't know how to cook, right? If they didn't keep a clean house, they could, they could divorce women. Uh, there wasn't the same standards on, on men as there were in women. And so women were oftentimes at the command of men, at the command of any man. And what Paul is telling them to do is Paul is telling these women to submit to their husbands. Now, that command may not seem scandalous because in, in, in their time, the, the fact for a woman to listen and obey a man, to put herself under the authority of a man, was expected. What's scandalous is that he is saying, put yourself under the authority of one earthly man, not a community of them. So here's what Paul is saying that I think is, is, is scandalous. And I think in, in our way, we take it for granted. Paul is, is actually empowering women with a word that they never had before to men outside of their marriage. That Paul is empowering women with a word they never had before, the word no. No. You see, their call was to listen to Jesus first, submit to one another out of reverence, so listen to Jesus and listen to their husband. And then they had the power to tell every other man no. Now, y'all, that is scandalous. That is what the gospel does. Paul's point here is to set yourself apart for your husband and your husband only, which is why he says this. In verse 23, it says this. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Now, this word head uh, means uh, like literally head, right? It means that, that the head can't exist without the body, which is why Christ is the head of the church. We can't exist without Christ. And so for a husband and wife to exist together, they need each other. It says, it says, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church puts itself under the authority of Christ, submits to Christ, so wives should, should put themselves under the authority in everything to their husbands. And so the church, it's set apart by Jesus. It's set apart for Jesus, by Jesus, and because we're set apart, we come under his authority. Now, Paul's going to circle back around in just a minute to say how to do this. Like how does the gospel speak to this? If this private life and public life, what's needed to make this happen in a, in a relationship? But first, he's going to talk to the husbands for just a minute before the men in the room get too comfortable. Because here's what he's going to say. He's going to say, um, where are we? Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. And there's that word again that we've been talking about, that word agape. The, the way God loves us is the way to, we're to love each other. And so he's looking at the men in the room. I mean, he's not actually looking. He wrote a letter. But the guy reading it is looking at the men in the room. And he's saying, you love your wives the way God showed his love for you. 
And what he's going to do here is he's going to look at a very specific way that, again, is scandalous in their culture. Because look at what he says. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the, ch- the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or... Um, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. For, who loves, for he who loves his wife loves himself. And no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, Paul says. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So, so here's, here's what it does. Paul says, listen, men, you are to love your wives the way Christ loved the church, to sacrifice yourself, to, to put their needs before your own. He says a husband uh, is to love his wife the way that Christ loves the church with this sacrificial love. And, 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 and this idea is so big and so grand for, for Paul that he loses himself and starts preaching about, about Christ in the church, right? And, and he gets caught up in this moment of saying, gosh, guys, 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 if you could understand just how big Christ's love for the church is, you would get a glimpse of what this looks like in your own home. That Christ died for the church so that we as the church, so that y'all could be presented to God holy and pure, And so husbands, are you sacrificing your life so that your wife can be more holy and more pure and and walk more righteously with God? Or are you thinking about yourself? Is your private life a selfish life even though your public life sitting here in church may look really good and pretty? And y'all, I've got to tell you, so many divorces are caused by this self-centeredness. The marriages would be saved if, if, if husbands... And even wives listened to Paul's words here that that, that marriages would be saved if, if we put the needs of our spouse ahead of ourselves, just as Jesus put the needs of the church and the needs of of justification and sanctification and resurrection and, and, and salvation above his own. Right, that Jesus gave his blood and body so that you and I can have this good and right relationship with the God who loves us and made us and have a good and right relationship with the people sitting in the same room with us. Now, y'all, I got to tell you, what Paul is saying here is that he is to, the husband who is a follower of Jesus is to put his needs above his wives. And in a male-dominated patriarchal culture like, like the one that they lived in, This is scandalous because men could do whatever they wanted without a whole lot of accountability. And if you don't believe me, there was a woman who was brought to Jesus because she committed adultery. I don't know about you, but she didn't do it by herself, right? Where's the man? He's not there. You know why? Because men could do whatever they wanted. And Paul is saying, If you're a follower of Jesus, you don't get to do whatever you want anymore. You get to do what God wants you to do. And he showed you what he wants you to do by showing you Jesus. When you see Jesus, you see you giving yourself up for the benefit of someone else. And so to the women, he said, ladies, you can say no to every man except the one that you place yourself under, your husband. And to the men, 
He's saying, men, from this point on, you can say yes to only one woman, and that is your wife. No more. Now, in weddings, I love to read 1 Corinthians 13 about, about love, right? Love is patient, it's kind, it's, it's all this stuff. And, 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 and I love to remind this couple that's full of love and unicorns and rainbows, right, that, that, that today that verse is really easy to live out. Tomorrow, you're going to need Jesus for it. You see, y'all, we all need the gospel in every area of our lives, in our public life and in our private lives, to love each other the way that God loves us. We need to see Jesus and understand Jesus and walk in faith with Jesus to see what it's like to live that faith out with others. And listen, if you've struggled escaping in various ways, if you've struggled loving others the way that that Jesus loves you, if you've struggled being loved the way that God loves you in Jesus, then then, then here's what I ask you to do is just to stop for just a minute and just breathe in. Like, breathe in the, the, the life that is in God. Like, like did you know when, when you take a deep breath, like, I know we're all wearing masks, but just do this with me for a minute. Like, just take a breath in. Do you know what your body does when you do that? It relaxes. So here's, here's what I want to do. Just breathe in a moment, and let's just receive the love that Jesus has for us. And And listen, if you are not a follower of Jesus, here's what I want you to know. Is that that Jesus' mission on earth was to to live the life that God had put on display for all people to live. And, 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 And people couldn't do it, but Jesus did. He lived this perfect life. And yet, he died the death of a criminal. Right? And here's the, 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 the twist that God does. When we say yes to Jesus, we get the benefit of that perfect life. And saying yes to following Jesus is saying yes to putting that Jesus who suffered on the cross and, and, and who died to, to fix this relationship just to show you the depth of God's love. When you say yes to that Jesus and put him at the center of your life, put him on the throne of your life instead of you, that saying yes to Jesus is not only this offer of salvation, but it is is the only way to have this private life embracing God is through Jesus. And And the bonus is that we get to enjoy this life with Jesus. We get to enjoy this life with God forever, for all of eternity. Well, Paul now ties, on a, ties the bow between the husbands and the wives to show what this looks like. In verse 33, it says, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Love, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, respect your husbands. That's how the gospel speaks into this. Those are the things that the gospel grows. It grows respect for your husband and it grows love for your wives. And those things are there. When those things are there, this, this willingly coming under the authority of the other, those must be there to, to empower this idea of submission. So this private life of love and respect empowers a public marriage with God. Now, you might be questioning, what happens if I don't love or respect my spouse? Well, let's talk about that in the post-sermon chat. Right? Because that's complicated. Let's talk. Or schedule an appointment with me and let's talk. Right? 
Paul goes on. We're going to hit these last two pretty quick. Chapter 6, verse 1 says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for it is right. Now remember, Paul is talking to who here? Kids. And so for a moment, Paul steps into children's ministry and he says, Kids, obey your parents. Come under them, submit to your parents. Now, what's scandalous about this is that no matter the year, this always seems like a scandalous command, doesn't it? For children to obey their parents. And Paul's going to talk about what's needed for them to do this. What's needed for a kid to publicly obey their parents. What's needed for them privately is this. Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Honor means to see is precious. And so kids and students, what Paul is saying about is, is how you think about your parents is really important. Right? It means that, that in your private life, you're thinking good thoughts about your parents. It means that you think the best of them. Maybe it means you write down some of the qualities of your parents that are good. Because for the most part, now this isn't every case, but for the most part, parents are doing the best they can, right? For those of you who are experienced parents helping younger parents, and you just tell them, like, like you're going to be okay, just keep going. Just keep going. Parents are trying the best they can. Kids... To obey your parents in public means that you think good things about them in private. But parents, I'm going to tell you this. Paul also says, hey, and by the way, parents, you need to earn those good thoughts. Because look at what he says next. Verse 4. Verse 4, he says this. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And I think he's specifically talking to dads here because this is a, a, a man-led culture. But, but, but even in, in psychology, you see that the way a person sees their dad is often the way they see God. And, and, and you have to kind of work through that. But, but, but dads, I want you to hear this. You're important. Moms, you're important. Parents, Paul's point is to don't provoke your kids to anger which means this it means spend time with your kids right like unstructured time and that's so hard sometimes isn't it it's so hard because we want to do and we want to accomplish but spend time with them it means model a godly life in front of them it means when you do have to discipline you discipline them in love not anger which means sometimes you got to take a break before you can come back to the issue right It means speak what is good and right over your kids. It means bless them with your words instead of always always criticizing them. It means listen to them. It It means don't compare them to others. Train a child up in the way he should go. Not train a child up in the way they should go. Train a child up in the way he should go. You don't compare one child to the next, which is hard, right? And what all this means is that you need Jesus to do this. Because you see, dads, when you see the best in your kids, it makes it a whole lot easier for them to see the best in you. You see, a private life seeing the best in each other, kids, students, parents, a private life seeing the best in each other empowers any family of God. You see, in both cases, let's look at this last one. Let's talk, about, let's talk about servants real quick. We're going to buzz through this one, I promise. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and with trembling and a sincere heart 
as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from where? The heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether, whether he is a bondservant or slave or whether he is free. Masters, do the same. And stop threatening, knowing that he who is both your master, and, listen, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. And see, in both cases, to the slave and the master, Paul is saying the gospel motivates the same thing. That if you're a person worried about what others say instead of what, what God says, you're always going to have this divided life. right? You're going to have a life in, in public that's different than a life in private. That your private life is going to be a life of anxiety and, 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 and scared and, and fear and depression. But in your public life might look good to everybody else, but it won't look good to God because he sees what's in your heart. And so Paul is telling whether you're a slave or whether you're a master, you obey God. Now, we don't have slaves now, right? And it's easy to apply this to work and you can do it. But you have to understand, in that culture, this was shocking. That masters were to treat their slaves with respect because God is watching. And slaves are to treat their masters with respect and not manipulation because God is watching and God sees. And what God wants is a sincere and honest heart. He wants a private life and a public life that's like this, no matter your position in life. You see, a private life listening to God empowers this public life yielded to God. And so, y'all, what would it look like if our private life and our public life, were, you know, if our private life was embracing God and our public life was this empowered life from that to, to, to please God? What would, where would you see a difference in your life? Like, where is the difference between your public life and private life? Where do you find yourself escaping? Maybe that's the question. Because here's what you do. When you find yourself escaping, you know what you do? Just take a break. Turn it off. Close the laptop. Put the phone down. Maybe put the phone in a different room when you go to bed. So you have to exercise some effort to get to that thing. Right? And rest. And turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Because his promise is life. And so let me ask you as we shut down today, where do you need Jesus today? As I've been talking about escaping, as I've been talking about these things with, with marriage and with kids, where do you need Jesus today? Because that, my friend, that is where your life can be whole. Jesus has something better for you. You see, there is where relationships can be mended. There is where families can be healed. There is where life can be found. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we need you. And we need you in areas that we don't tell anybody about. And God, I pray that, that you would shine your light into those areas and change us and free us and, and, and show us a better way. Give us rest as a people, like godly Sabbath rest. Let us take naps uh, without guilt. <laughs> Let us take naps with joy and contentment, realizing 
that the world may still be a mess when we wake up, but you'll also still be in charge and that we can rest in you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.